Those woods going over there if he didn't grab any plates, standing like a, just standing like he doesn't know what he's doing. Because I didn't. I thought I was supposed to grab the plates. My bad. Forgot about that. I love being in here. It's so fun. Just, I, I was really, I felt real good about my sermon until we had this, all this amazing, the children and the handbells and that anthem. Man, I feel like I'd just be an amen, let's go home, go home now. But I'm not going to do that. I got too many notes for that. Has there ever been a time in your life where you struggled to fit in? Where you felt accepted? Where you felt like you belonged? Um, where you felt like you were having a hard time feeling accepted or feeling like you belonged? I feel like, like that desire takes up a lot of our efforts in life. The, the desire to, to not feel left out. A few weeks ago in the contemporary service, I shared that this is something in the social media world that is called FOMO, the fear of missing out. If you're ever on Facebook and you see somebody say FOMO, that means that they're sad they weren't at that party or that event or whatever it might be. Perhaps you heard about a party at like the last minute and you wanted to to make it there so that you didn't miss out on the fun. And so you change your schedule because you know it was going to be exciting. You know everybody who's anybody would be there. So, so you made sure to get there so you didn't miss out. Or when everyone has the latest fashion item or home decor, we want to get that too because we don't want to miss out on that trend. When everyone is doing bar three and pure bar workouts and getting these six-pack abs so we convince ourselves that we too can do bar classes because we don't want to miss out. But let's be honest. Whenever I have that thought, a couple hours later, I find myself sunk into the couch halfway through a bag of Oreos, watching Fixer Upper reruns for three hours, lamenting that Chip and JoJo will no longer be coming out with new episodes. I'm going to miss out on that one probably. As I've mentioned on other occasions, in my adolescence, I was not the most stellar athlete. And because of such, it took me a while um, to realize, well, to realize that fact, to realize I wasn't very good. I played all the sports mostly because I didn't want to miss out on the things that were going on, not because I actually liked playing. In fact, except for soccer, because I was not very good, I subjected myself to a lot of experiences that I could have avoided if I just had not been insecure about the potential of missing out on something. Like the bear crawl at the end of every football practice. And if you don't know what a bear crawl is, it's literally on all hands and on all fours, your hands and your feet, and you're wearing cleats, and you go through this chute. And you go like a figure eight, you know, motion, and everybody's doing this in the line. And if you're slow, people don't stop and wait for you. So people did not stop and wait for me on any of the end of those practices. Or maybe whenever I um, would play baseball, I clean the dugout more times than I can count. Because I didn't want to miss out on being part of the baseball team. But if you don't play, they give you another task, which is to clean the dugout. And maybe the worst of all was having to do these sprint drills during basketball practice. And the coach would always say, if everyone on the team doesn't make it in a certain amount of time, we're all going to do them again. You know, trying to build that team camaraderie. But guess who was the one person on the team who didn't quite make it on time? And so everyone loved the fact they got to run more sprints because of him. That would be me. All because I was afraid I would miss out on something fun if I wasn't there or miss out on being part of the group. Have you ever felt that way? Afraid you're gonna miss out on something? I know I have. As we turn our attention back to our scripture lesson this morning, I would like for us to focus on the Jeremiah passage that was read earlier. Our Old Testament lesson that the lectionary provides for us this week really drew me in. 
Normally, I, I preach from the gospel. Anytime we have the lectionary, I'm always drawn to the gospel lessons. But as I was reading through our scripture selections, I couldn't help but pause on this Jeremiah text. And in this passage, we have what is arguably the first or, or the second most recognizable text from the prophet's book. Other than, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. This passage we heard this morning causes great excitement in the church. When we read it, we, we are brought to life with images of the new covenant. It gives us a glimpse into the cosmic reality that is on the horizon for Jeremiah and his community. He tells them, the day is surely coming, so the day is soon to come, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If you remember from earlier in the Old Testament, God is in the covenant-making business. He makes a covenant with Noah not to flood the earth anymore. He makes a covenant with Abraham to make him the father of a great nation. He makes a covenant with Moses and the Israelite people, perhaps the greatest covenant or at least the most impactful for day-to-day life by giving the people the law. And the law was that which governed the Israelites' day-to-day activities. It was the way people could be made right with God after they had sinned or transgressed. The law, if kept, would offer the Israelites reconciliation with God. And through it, God would cleanse them of their iniquities. But Jeremiah is not talking about that covenant, though that covenant is the highlight of most of the Old Testament. In fact, he is talking about almost the opposite of this covenant. He goes on to say, It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. No, he says, It won't be like that covenant that I made with Moses. Instead, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this is a pretty big shift if you think about it. Before it was up to the people to faithfully study the law, to learn it, to commit it to memory so that they were always able to choose that which they knew God commanded. But in this new covenant, God says the law will be written on everyone's hearts. He goes on to say, No longer shall they teach one another or say to one another, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This sounds pretty great, right? It's almost like God is realizing that he set the bar a little bit too high for humanity. Like as a parent who at age, when their kid is at the age of three and they throw a football about five feet, They think, oh, my kid's going to be the next Peyton Manning. He's three years old, already throwing it five feet. And then 25 years later, when he's 28 and still throws a football about the same distance, we realize that that bar might have been set just a little bit too high. God says, I gave you the law. I made a covenant with you that if you had followed, you would be made whole, you'd be made right. But still you broke that law, even though I was supposed to be your husband. It sounds like God realized that there was no way the people were going to keep this law. They would continue breaking this covenant. So God is determined to do a new thing, to bring forth a new covenant with the people. And Jeremiah hears God saying that when this new covenant does come and become established, that all will know God and all will know what is right from wrong because God was going to write the law on our hearts. The reason why I wanted to preach this text, the reason why I was drawn to this text is because I found some discomfort with it. I found my soul wrestling with this scripture passage. As I was preparing for this sermon, it struck me in a new way than in the times when I'd read it before. 
Isn't it great how scripture can do that, how the Bible is alive? And you can read a passage for years, the same passage, and then all of a sudden something new happens. God does something new when he speaks into your life. That's why it's the living word. And that happened to me when I was preparing for this sermon. And so I texted the other pastors. We have a pastor group message going on. We're all um, technologically advanced enough to where we can all do a group chat. And so we, we were talking through this message and, and I asked them about my, my dilemma with Jeremiah. And what was awesome, and let me just say, real off, you know, on the side, we've got an awesome pastor group. And, and it is so much fun to work with Sheila and Robbins and Kathy and to we can just interact with this way all the time. I just, I love our team. And I'm so grateful that you allow all of us to be here because it is a joy and blessing to work with these people. And so we were texting and I told them about something I was struggling with with Jeremiah and all of them sent very lengthy responses, which, I mean, imagine that four preachers send lengthy responses about anything. But the funny thing was they were all different. Again, that's just a testament to how the Bible speaks to us in very different ways sometimes because the ways in which each of us responded um, was not exactly like the others. Robbins, in his deeply theological and wise and full of wisdom way, offered ruminations on this text that drew upon the power of the Holy Spirit to be the agent that works in various ways to write this law on our hearts. And, and Sheila reminded me of Jeremiah's commitment to the conflicted and afflicted people, that he offers hope to those without any. And Kathy, in the most like, loving, grace-filled, Kathy way possible, suggested that this text helps us see as humans we are more alike than we are different because the law is written on all of our hearts. And the funny thing is, I didn't read it any of those ways. I didn't get any of that. I was struggling with something different. I was struggling how we can reconcile something that we have established as truth because of our Christocentric lens, because we always read about Christ. And so we have a hard time as Christians reading the Jeremiah passage without associating it with Jesus particularly from the gospel of Luke when Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. Paul repeats that same line whenever he describes the event in 1 Corinthians, Jesus poured out his blood of the new covenant. And we say it every time we have communion, we go through the liturgy and we hold up the blood and we hold up the, the juice and say, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many. But here was my dilemma. I was struck and I was stuck on this idea about not needing teachers anymore because all will know God. Did you get that? Let me read verse 34 again. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest says the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And I'm good with the forgiving of iniquity part Remembering the sin no more. Like we talk about that every week. When Jesus has done that through the work on the cross, we are forgiven of our sins. And I totally understand that that's why we think of the Jeremiah text as prophesying Jesus's activity. But I couldn't get past this idea of not needing teachers anymore because all will know God. Because as I'm reading, preparing, that's literally what I was doing, preparing to teach. And one of the things we do as pastors is try to help people who don't know the Lord to come to know the Lord. And as Christians, we're all called to make disciples. We're all agents of the kingdom, evangelists, to go proclaim the good news. So how do we reconcile that we think Jeremiah was alluding to and prophesying about Jesus? Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. But in this prophecy, there's this idea that all will have already known the Lord once this work is completed. I was wondering, is, is, was Jeremiah talking about a different new covenant? Was Jesus, you know, 
not the one that Jeremiah was talking about specifically in this prophecy. We know Jesus forgave sins, but, but how do we reconcile this other part? And I, and I started struggling with this for a couple of days. I mean, you, do you see why this doesn't jive so easily? For a couple of days, I was praying over this and wrestling with it. And I thought about, you know, maybe I'll just get up there and I'll say, here's the text. I don't know what to do with it. Good luck. Amen. But I did not think that would be the most responsible thing for me to do as a preacher. And so as I was praying and reading, a light bulb, a light bulb went off in my head when I read a commentary in the Feasting on the Word series by John Berquist. And he says, the highly utopian tone of the prophecy points more clearly to a vision that is not yet over, but is still in process of realization. And when I read that, I immediately felt silly for forgetting one of the most important things about the reality we occupy. Friends, we are in the already and the not yet. Maybe you've heard us say that before. Maybe you've said that before to somebody else. But one of the things about faith that we reiterate and realize is that we are in the already because Jesus has come and has died and did raise from the dead and for that we are forgiven for our sins. But the world is not as it should be. There is still sin and pain and hurt and suffering and oppression. And so we are also in the not yet. If God had fulfilled all that he intended in and through the time when Jesus was here on earth, then we would already be in heaven and there'd be no need for the church to do a mission of making disciples. There'd be no need to serve the poor and the needy because it'd already be done. So we are in the already and the not yet. Lent is a reminder for us that we too still have to journey on this life, that we are still journeying through the sanctifying grace of God to be made more perfect on our way to perfection. And as I remembered that, I reread the text and God spoke a new word into me and reminded me something very important. Spoke something into me that is where I want to leave us this morning. If you read the text again through the lens of already and not yet, then in that very first verse when Jeremiah prophesied, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Because if you remember, at this time in Israelite's history, the nation has been split. There was a, basically a civil war, so to say, that the nation was split into the northern part and the southern part. And the northern was called Israel and the southern was called Judah. And then the Neo-Assyrians came and they wiped off Israel off the map. And all was left was Judah. And a lot of our Old Testament was written from a southern perspective. It'd be like a sibling who, who doesn't always quite get along. And so they don't have as many great things to say about their sister or brother. And so we hear a lot about the northern part of Israel being, um, they're committing apostasy, worshiping other gods. But yet here in Jeremiah's text, we see something beautiful. We see that God is not only providing a new covenant for Judah, but also for Israel. And that God is not only reconciling people to himself, but to each other. And isn't that a hopeful word? That God's new covenant is not just for us. It's not just for those of us who go to church. It's not just for those of us who are in this room. God's new covenant is for all people. And God wants to reconcile all people to himself and all people to one another. 
And so because we are in the already and the not yet, there is still work to do, friends. During this Lenten season, we remember that we are called to be the church that makes the kingdom of God known on earth as it is in heaven. And there is a whole world full of people who might not feel the belonging we feel here. During high school and during middle school, whenever I didn't feel that belonging on my sports teams, whenever I, I was searching for that, you know, I always found it at the church. The people at the church loved me. My pastors supported me. People poured into my life. I always knew there, there was an element of belonging. And that is, I hope that, that the world can know that. That the world can know that in and through the church, you will find a place of belonging. I hope that people come here and they see that they are loved and that we want them to know the Lord. Because we are God's hands and feet in this world. And the mission is to make disciples. And our mission as a church is to make disciples who make a difference. And so may we be this church that lives in this already and not yet and tries to help others find a place of belonging. If this is your first time here with us, know that this is an amazing church. People here love the Lord and they love you. I've felt that over the past eight months in ways that I can't even convey. May we be a church as we move forward into the future who tries to help others find the belonging that so many people are desperate for. Because there are people in your work, in your neighborhood, in your school that are hurting and broken. And you and I, we know the good news of Jesus Christ. So may we be a church that helps others know that they have a place to belong. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are our God and we are your people. It's the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.